This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 116 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is the singer-songwriter Tori Amos, who has influenced generations of singer-songwriters with music that the New York Times has said fuses, quote, the brashness of rock, the poetry of mysticism, and the politics of gender and survival, close quote. The 53-year-old burst onto the scene 25 years ago with her album Little Earthquakes, which included the singles Me and a Gun, Winter, Silent All These Years, and Crucify and which was chosen in 2002 by Q Magazine as the fourth greatest album of all time by a female artist, and also appears in the book 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. Little Earthquakes went platinum, selling over 2 million copies worldwide. Her next two albums, Under the Pink and Boys for Pele, each spread two years apart, sold a million each, and she has continued to make acclaimed and popular music ever since. What some do not know about Amos is that she's also experienced sexual assault, and has spent decades fighting for fellow survivors. She has been involved with RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, since its establishment in 1994, when she answered its toll-free helpline's ceremonial first call, and she later became its first national spokesman as well. This year, she wrote Flickr, a song that she also performs over the end credits of the Netflix documentary Audrey and Daisy, which is about two teens who were tormented by sexual assaults and subsequent social media harassment. The song currently is the subject of considerable Oscar buzz and, more importantly, has helped to promote awareness and discussion of this terrible epidemic. Over the course of our conversation, Amos and I talk about how growing up as the daughter of a conservative minister shaped her as a person and a musician, how she was discovered, why little earthquakes almost never saw the light of day, who the nine quote-unquote muses are who she says follow her everywhere, why she now, in her 50s, regrets the way she interacted with music industry suits back when she was in her 20s and 30s, and the moving reasons why she named her latest song, Flicker. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. We always begin just with a, a stock question. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Newton, Conover, North Carolina, on August 22, 1963. And my dad was a Methodist minister, and my mom is and was magic. Yeah. How did growing up in a very religious household impact your exposure to music and also shape you generally? Well, my dad, I guess, wanted me to write music for the church. I think that was his desire first. And my mom says I was playing at two and a half. So playing um, the piano, playing the piano. Yes. And he would go to the church in the Washington, Baltimore area. That was the conference he was in. 
And then my mom would pull out her records. <laughs> because before she married him, yeah. she had worked at a record store and had collected all these records. What was her kind of music? Well, Blue Eyes was her. Okay. She said, let's put a little Blue Eyes on <laughs> after Dad would go. But right. then, of course, there were Billie Holiday records, Fats Weiler, Musical Theater, Oklahoma. <laughs> Absolutely. So I guess the, the question that would occur to most people who familiarize themselves with your background is, how does somebody get into a conservatory at age five, and how does someone get kicked out of one at age 11? Both of those things are unusual, I would say. Hmm. Well, I guess having a father that there were, it was a big congregation in Baltimore when I guess we moved there when I was two and a half from Georgetown, and there were musicians in the church. So they were talking to my parents saying, look, you, you need to do the right thing. She needs proper training because just because she can play whatever she hears, she needs to be taught to read music, she needs to be taught theory, and she needs to be taught the classics. And they were professional classical musicians. So they were guiding my parents. Therefore, I had an audition and was accepted at five. And this was at the Peabody Institute at Johns Hopkins. You, what, what were those next six years like, and why did they come to an end prematurely? Well, you know, honestly, they taught me a lot of things. They exposed me to Bach, Mozart, and Debussy, Bartok, and so many others. I had an amazing piano teacher called Mrs. Gorielkin, and then there were professors teaching um, elementals and, and the beginnings of theory. And sometimes I wouldn't be a very good listener in those <laughs> things, and I would just be writing songs in my head. And they'd put quarters on my hands to get my hands to play correctly. <laughs> and so there was also analyzing, well, looking at music, looking at a structure, how to understand it. So there were things that I didn't really realize I was learning at the time, but what I wanted to know was about Lennon and McCartney, right. and I wanted to crawl inside those structures, and I wanted them to teach that kind of music. Where had you been exposed to that kind of music? My brother was 10 years older than I was, and before my father could come home from church for dinner time, my brother would have brought in the doors, possibly, and at a certain point, Zeppelin, yeah, of course, yeah. the Stones, and the Beatles. And what would your dad have said if he had heard you or found you listening to, to that kind of music? Well, you know, Jim Morrison was the devil, <laughs> and Zeppelin was devil music, right. which of course made it so attractive. Right. I wanted, though, to learn about Lennon and McCartney songs. And this conservatory was not doing that at all? No, they. I was told that in 30 years, you you wouldn't even know who these people were. <laughs> and I was arguing that they're the Mozarts of our time. Yeah. And it was, clearly I was rubbing up against a different way of thinking. The Peabody now has changed, mm -hmm. and they're much more open-minded. I met with the new dean a few months ago. Mm -hmm. And so things have, you know, things have progressed, thank right. goodness. But at the time, they weren't open to that. So I lost my scholarship and got checked out. And then being back in the regular school system, I assume, how did your normal, non-musically gifted kids react to you, who I assume was probably quickly known as the musically gifted kid? Well, the thing is, I had been going to elementary school through the week, and I was at the Peabody at the weekend. But what changed was that I could tell not having that in my life, it had been such a huge part of my development, and there was a vacuum there. I was really writing, though, at the time. I was writing more and more songs because I didn't have to practice the classics, so I was working on my own stuff. But my father thought, look, you need to get your skill set going. So when my mom went to visit her parents in North Carolina, actually her mother, he took me downtown into Georgetown, and we tried to get a job 
So instead of busking on the street, we right. tried to get a job in one of the piano bars. How old bars. were you at this point? 13. Okay. And nobody would let us in. Nobody would give us a chance. They'd say, sorry, Reverend, not here. Except the gay bar. <laughs> so we've got Reverend Amos yes. taking you, his daughter, into a gay bar, hoping Re- that she can get a gig there. Yeah, Reverend Edison McKinley Amos. Yes taking his daughter (laughs) and they would say this guy said look reverend she can play for tips and if it works out then come back next week and that began another 11 13 years of learning other people's structures and your dad for for all his being a a bit of a hard ass is that a fair word to use strict strict for all of that in fact he i don't know what his exact motivations were, but he was the one sending out your demo tapes, wasn't he, in the ensuing years? Yes. So at a certain point, I got a my own little rig with a little microphone, and I was producing my own songs with a little drum machine and keyboards and whatever. And then sending them out, my dad would send them out with the lyrics. So he was really, I guess, acting as a minister agent. (laughs) And (laughs) the response kept coming back, this isn't for us. And so I kept playing piano bar, and by 15 I was working five nights a week and 16 six nights a week. Making money? Making pretty good money when I was 16. Yeah, I made $600 a week when I was 16, which was probably more than a minister was getting paid. But the thing about my dad is he had had me at the weekends playing funerals and weddings by when I was nine but he got me two for one so we do the funerals in the morning and the wedding in the afternoon it's a lot of you got experience under your belt what was the there was some story that I had seen about you and your brother doing something with the Baltimore Orioles well my this was actually my dad's idea again he thought he was a real sports fan he was an Orioles fan and a Washington Redskins fan. I know, one's Washington, <laughs> one's Baltimore. But he he really was very persuasive and got me to write this song about the Baltimore Orioles. And it's, I'm sorry, it's a little bit cringeworthy. <laughs> and it was just one of those things where my dad was pretty persuasive. I think he thought maybe he, he could have been Billy Graham, but I really think he would have been pretty good in Hollywood as <laughs> an agent. A, a huckster, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you won some sort of a contest that, that actually got made into your first single, basically? Well, I guess I, I won, yes, I won the Montgomery County Talent Contest from um, a song that I had written that was a different song. And I forgot about that Teen Talent Contest, <laughs> Scott. But I think what was going on, though, was I was working six nights a week at the Sheridan Carlton near the White House and getting requests from people that would go there every night. There would be somebody who knew Billy Burke. from <laughs> This old guy that was sitting right. there saying, you know, in the old <laughs> days, you would need to go through the studio system and you need to know how to sing the songs correctly. And so... I would be learning these songs for these curmudgeons. And I had the lucky opportunity of Tip O'Neill sitting at the piano bench and singing Bye Bye Black. No way. That's crazy. So this is like at this point, what, early 80s, late 70s? Yeah, I was about 14, 15 when Tip O'Neill, I played a Christmas party. (laughs) And all the other piano players had Russian flu. So they hauled me in there. I think I was the 10th choice. But it was pretty amazing having the Speaker of the House (laughs) singing Bye Bye Black. At the piano with you, right. So the big turning point, I guess, would it be correct to say at some point, I guess maybe one of of these demos that your, your dad sent out gets to Atlantic Records? Or how did that come about with Atlantic Records? There was a guy, um, a local guy, where my dad had been taking the music and there was a local guy called Van who sent the tape on up to a guy called Jason Flom and Jason came down and my dad picked him up either at the airport or the train station and came to by then I was playing in Georgetown it was called the Marbury House at the time Mm -hmm. 
and it was a little piano bar in Georgetown. And he came and heard me play. And Jason, just for folks who don't know necessarily, he was at that point in what capacity, in what job? He was an A&R guy who had signed Twisted Sister and was known as the heavy metal rock dude. But he came and heard me play and said, I get it. Okay, I get it. But then it was really about, I get it here sitting at this piano bar in Georgetown, but I'm thinking about the radio and what's on the radio, and you're kind of in the wrong time frame now Mm -hmm. because now we were getting into the British Invasion and either metal music or the British Invasion and synth keyboards, and we were out of a time of singer-songwriter and Carole King. Right. So how was that communicated to you? And would your natural development, natural evolution have been what it ended up being? Or was he now in some ways communicating to you that you have to change the type of music that you need to do if you want to make this a career? He was communicating that I needed to expand my horizons. And if I wanted to be the person writing all the songs, and he was supporting that, then he thought I I needed to keep writing and to keep producing my tapes and, and to keep sending them to him. There is a little step that I missed telling you, which was a couple years before I met Jason, a guy called Narda Michael Walden had come into one of the hotel lobbies when I was about 17. Where you were playing? Back at the Sheridan yeah. Carlton. And he came in and said, okay, Joni... Joni Mitchell. This is at the piano. This is the kind of music you need to be doing and writing. And he flew me and my mom out there to LA to San Francisco. He was working at the Automat, I think, then. And a guy called Randy Jackson was there on the sessions. And we wrote a song together called Skirts on Fire and Rub Me Down. And it was a little bit different from the idea of Joni Mitchell from the river to rub me down. Right. But So that was a little <laughs> experience that taught me a lot. Narda was amazing working with him, but I'm not an R&B singer or a dance artist. And I think I had to realize by trying to chase something that wasn't me, I was getting it wrong. So that's important just because Jason, who was sitting there saying, okay, British Invasion, what's going on now? But I had already chased something that wasn't me. So he said, okay, what you need to do is keep writing and keep developing on your own timescale. And hoping that your development on your own timescale would be in a direction that that was more, I guess, marketable is the word, than than the singer-songwriter at the piano? Is that what his... The singer-songwriter at the piano wasn't commercial then at that time. So how did you guys leave it? Because, so where was he coming from? Jason came in from... New York. New York. Comes down, sees you, likes you, but you're not quite yet where you need to be in in his view. So how did you guys leave it? Did he sign you or did he come back or what? No, he said, keep sending me tapes. Yeah. And keep doing this. You're only 19 years old. Right. And so by the time I was 21, a friend of mine was out here in L.A., His name was Steve Himmelfarb, and he was working at Capitol Records as an assistant engineer. Mm -hmm. And his dad was making commercials out here, and I'd gone to high school with him at Richard Montgomery in Rockville, Maryland. And he just said, you need to get your butt out here because you're just going to die in a piano bar. I'm going to come see you in 25 years, and you're Mm -hmm. still going to be playing this Mm -hmm. stuff and trying to be Billy Burke. Mm -hmm. And you're just not as cute as Billy Burke. It's not going (laughs) to happen, T. So I came out here. And somebody who had been working at the Sheraton Carlton was now head of the Sheraton chain on the West Coast. He was some British guy. And I found his number and said, could you get me a gig at one of the Sheratons in L.A. Mm -hmm. because I need to work and I need a way in. And he said, well, you've got to get a combo together because we're doing combo at the Sheraton downtown. And if you get a combo, then I can give you a month. And that was the beginning of working in L.A. That combo was why can't Tori read no that combo was some the blue book we were playing standards at the Sheridan downtown LA so how did that 
go? What did that lead into? Well, what had happened is Randy Jackson had said, you need to call a guy up called Brad Cobb, who's a really good guy, and try and form a band. And so I did call Brad, and he introduced me to Matt Sorum, who became the drummer in the band, and a guy called Steve Caton, who became the guitar player. And Matt Sorum then went on to join the cult and then Guns N' Roses. But at that time, this was 86, this is you guys forming Why Can't Tori Tori Reid, which we should preface by saying your birth name is not Tori, right? When did Tori enter the picture? At 17. I changed my name at 17. How come? Because I just knew that whatever my parents came up with, it just wasn't right. Mm -hmm. And so I changed it then. But the thing is, Matt Sorum's idea was, though, for this to work, why can't Tori Reid? I needed to become Tori (laughs) Reid. But my dad wouldn't allow me. He still wanted the last name. To be, he said, Amos is in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. What's the, what's the problem with that? <laughs> it's been good for a few thousand years. Right. What's your problem, <laughs> Tori Ellen? And I just said, well, I don't know. what. I, then I called Matt and said, Matt, my dad won't let me change my name to Tori Reed. He goes, what are you talking about? That the whole concept is that you're Tori Reed. <laughs> but anyway, we kept the name yeah. and made some demo tapes. And just for the record, the Tori part of it, why did you get the name Tori? Somebody called Linda McBride had this boyfriend and they walked in to see me play at this Sheridan Carlton. And I just was working with different names. Sammy J, I think, crossed my mind. I know it was a moment in time, guys. Jason wasn't fond of Sammy J. He said, honey, what are you doing? And so then this guy just walks in with my friend Linda and says, you're you're Tori. And I said, you know what? Thanks. You're right. And I never saw him again. (laughs) Now... Why Can't Tori Reid puts out an album in 1988, two years after forming. Was that now through Atlantic? Had you reconnected with Jason? Jason and I had been in touch all this time, Mm -hmm. and he had been hearing demo tapes. And he happened to like a demo tape that we turned in that didn't become that album Mm -hmm. because it was somewhat different maybe more rock-oriented, the demo tape he liked. But by that time, I had signed with Atlantic Records and Doug Morris. As an individual or as this band? Well, the first record was Why Can't Tori Reid? Uh-huh. But we were fragmenting because mm-hmm. Matt was now, I think, in Guns N' Roses, I believe. Overlappingly. I think he had gone to go do that. Uh-huh. My dates aren't the best now, but he was in the cult and then in that. Mm -hmm. And so I had the opportunity to work with Joe Ciccarelli because I had been doing keyboard work on an Al Stewart record and was able to meet Joe through that. And Joe agreed to produce the album. So the album, which was named after the band, comes out. How did it go over? And then, as you say, the band was fragmenting. So what came after that? Well, it didn't go over so well, the album. I don't know how else to say it, but I guess Billboard referred to it as bimbo music. And so I guess I realized that I took off my too tight corset and all the hairspray that was in my hair where my hair almost touched the ceiling. (laughs) And I kind of realized, I went to see a friend, her name was Cindy, and I remember her smoking a big fatty. And the smell was glorious. And she just said, why don't you play the piano for me? This is what you're supposed to be doing. And I said, yeah, but nobody wants a piano player. Their guitar players are fine, but not piano players. That's kind of dead. She goes, well, it's not dead tonight. So I played for her. And that was the beginning, I guess, of Little Earthquakes, but I didn't know it yet. And Little Earthquakes, first of all, can you believe this This is your the second album that you were part of, your first solo, and can you believe that it's going to be 25 years in a year or a few, in a month? No, I, I can't, I can't <laughs> believe it, because 25 years ago it actually came out in England. 
at the end of 1991, and it so came out in America. Now. Yeah, yeah, 25, wow. So people will be surprised to learn that this album, which is the one that really put you on the map, was not immediately accepted even by Atlantic, right? Correct. David Sergerson was the producer, and when we turned it in, the response, the collective was, and there were people involved at Atlantic that had this idea that hadn't been directly involved in my life. And it was that we need to take all the pianos off and replace them with guitars. And that's when I just said to Doug Morris, we'll sell me to Gary Gersten. And Doug Morris, just for the record, is the guy running Atlantic Recording Group at that point. He's who you're under contract to. It's pretty ballsy to have said that, right, at that point, because you weren't yet somebody that everybody knew. You weren't. There's no guarantee that there would be another recording contract somewhere else. So for you to stand up for your genre, in a sense, was was not a no-brainer. At that point, I had come too far. I knew Why Can't Tori Read wasn't the first time I was chasing writing something and then performing something that was disingenuous. And so I knew that Little Earthquakes, that was the truth of where I was at the time. And I'd rather be able to wake up with myself in the morning and have some self-respect for myself as a songwriter than betray myself again. And so it really wasn't brave. It was the only thing I knew how to do at the time. And David was trying to give me some support, and he said, you've made, it, you've made a good record. You made the right record for yourself. Anyway, Doug said to me, look, I'm not selling you to Gary Gersh across the street. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And so... At Geffen Records. Yeah, at Geffen, yeah. And I just said, well, look, nobody's touching the pianos. He said, well, okay. We made it an agreement that I would turn in a couple more tracks. I worked with Eric Ross, who we were dating, but we had done the demos together of Little Earthquakes a couple years before David had produced it. So mm-hmm. I'd worked with him. And Doug agreed. So we went and we did four songs. And then when I turned them in, Doug said, okay, you know what? I get it now. I get it. And so he said, I want to call England up because I think they need to be involved too. Why did he say that? He thought that I needed to go play live in Europe. That it could catch on there more easily than in the U.S. That was his thinking. Mm -hmm. It was just an instinct he had. And you know what? He was right. You know, it was a pretty provocative album. There were lyrics like, don't you want more than my sex from Song Leather? And people have described the album as being sort of a tug of war between shame and desire and all that. I just wonder, does that sound right to you? And also, who do you think were the people who responded to it? Well, I don't really analyze what it is. I think I leave it for other people. Mm -hmm to figure that out it seemed the people that were coming to the shows and listening to the record they had their own experiences that they wanted to share and it became a collaborative relationship and after the show I would talk to I would meet everybody that came to the show and Johnny my tour manager at the time said to me look if you do this every night we're we're not going to make it for you're not going to keep doing this for months and months we need to tour the world okay but it just became one of those things whereby the audience they became my collaborators and there was a very tangible emotional connection with a lot of these folks I mean part of it I think tell me if you agree but it seems from everything I've been able to gather that it was predominantly young women who might relate to some of the experiences that you were saying about and who were not hearing that in many other places at that point. And there was an unusual sort of loyalty among the, the fan base, right? So is that is that how you perceived the, I mean, I guess you had nothing to compare or contrast it to prior to that, but is that, what was, what was at the root of this loyalty among the, the fans? A mutual experience that they were going through something similar that I was in trying to figure out what I believed in and the self-discovery of that 
there were also, there was a gay community that they were coming to the shows as well. Mm-hmm. Guys is, that had gone through abuse, sexual assault as well. Of course, many women identified with that, and they were talking to me about their stories. You say your first album, Little Earthquakes, was first solo album was like a diary. Your second, Under the Pink, two years later, was like a painting. Your third, Boys for Pelly 96, two years after that, was like a journey. And then the fourth was like a hotel. What do you mean by these kinds of descriptions of them? I, I think I know what you mean, but I'm curious what your take Scott, on. I don't know what kind of crap I'm talking about. <laughs> Back in the uh, past, something we all say well, things. You know, <laughs> Forget that. I just need to write songs and zip it sometimes. Well, <laughs> it's like, Jesus, story. Well, you get asked a lot of questions. But, yeah, but, yeah. So, but let's say, though, that they each, the first three each sold at least a million copies, and they also all provoked... A little bit of controversy. You were singing about sex and God and rape and murder. You were also, apart from the lyrics, you were breastfeeding a pig in the photo of that 96, the, sl- the photo that went in the sleeve of that album. Say that with a smile on your face. I, hey, it's, <laughs> hey, it's a creative way of, I've never seen a pig be breastfed. But That was, was my <laughs> Christmas card to the Methodist church. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was. It was mother and child, and it was really bringing the non-kosher back into the fold. Well, so... It was then all of this stuff. Was it part of a strategy to sort of court controversy, or is that just the kind of thing you would naturally strategy. do? No strategy. I, I th- look. I think as a minister's daughter, <laughs> whose grandmother was a missionary teacher, right, who had said, written a letter to my father saying, you know, little Myra Ellen doesn't know how to pray and doesn't love the Lord or Jesus. And I'm thinking, I've got no problems loving Jesus, Grandma. You are my problem. (laughs) And that was when I was five. And so when you are brought up where you don't even get a say in what you believe in, Mm -hmm. but you're force-fed what you have to believe, then you know what, Scott? You start asking questions. Maybe you start reading. You start reading books when people say, hey, maybe you should pick up some mythology. Maybe you should, have you heard of Joseph Campbell? Maybe you need to open your mind, read some stuff. You've spoken over the years, I've seen a lot of different interviews about your quote unquote muses. You're you're talking about them as if they're people, but I didn't get the sense that you were actually referring to individuals. What are, do you remember, do you know what I'm talking about here? Yeah, I mean the nine muses. So tell me about that. Well, they're real. And I'm very blessed that they knock on my door once in a blue moon and we collaborate together and they let me have the copyright and the publishing. I'm very <laughs> thankful to them for that. But they are absolutely real. So why nine? Who are the nine? What distinguishes them? One of them is silent. Okay. A lot of these songs are very personal about intimate things, but you did not like it when people use the word confessional. Why is that? I don't know if the word confessional, there, there is a religious kind of connotation there. I think that I found in way back in the 90s that the word cathartic was used, but it was used as a pejorative at the time, and I could smell it <laughs> when it came out of their mouth. But when they were talking about the guys who were writing emotional stuff, well, then they were tapping into something. Yeah. They were able to access something. And I really (laughs) just roll my eyes and say, well, that's just crap. You know, you have to, let's have equality here. Then the guys are cathartic. (laughs) And and if we're going to have equality, then I'll take it. Right. But if you're just going to project that onto the women songwriters, then you can fuck off. (laughs) While things were really taking off in the in the 90s, you've said in hindsight, quote, I went up against the suits in the mid-90s in the wrong way, close quote. What do you mean? What happened? Why were you bucking heads in the first place? They should have been happy with these sales, right? Well, I was listening to the wrong muse clearly there. I should have had, I should have been listening to um, the one that was a little bit more judicious. And I think that 
I was frustrated how the game was played. And if I'm just completely honest with mm-hmm. you, I didn't have enough experience on how to play that chess game. So what kinds, give a, an example so somebody can grasp what you're talking about, where you're asked to do something and you're not really into it. What would be the kind of thing that a suit might be pushing you to do? Oh, Okay. You know, I just want everybody to know that, Scott, I haven't drunk some Kool-Aid, but I feel like I there's some truth serum that you've put in my water. <laughs> That's I don't know what it is, you know. I, there's a side of me, I, I need to call Peter Paterno and say, am, my lawyer, can I, you know, can, can I say this? Okay, so mentioning no names, yep. let's just not talk about a time frame here so so we can't, we can't Identify, focus on, right. yeah. There, there was a time way back when, when say you're on tour and you have a sold out tour and then there are 20 seats or whatever that they're giving tickets away for to different outlets, say. Mm-hmm. Outlet is a good word. I think that's a, a generic. Like me- media outlets or? No, let's just say the word outlet. Okay, all right. Okay. And then instead of them maybe playing your record and they take the 20 tickets then they're promoting a different record in return for those for my tickets for your tickets so you're being in a sense hustled hustled or used or whatever for i like the word kind of yeah yeah hustled Hustled. taken advantage of gotcha and this is the thing i think i'm i'm a fair bird and i'll meet you halfway I think fair is fair, but what I don't like is deceit, and I just think it's like, okay, then then don't take the 20 tickets. That's fine. We have a sold-out tour. Then don't do that. But to use, to be used, is, I had issues with it. So I think there were ways to talk about it at the time. I don't think that going into the record company and really calling some of the people on their shenanigans mm-hmm. was clever. Was the f- sort of fallout of that kind of thing felt immediately, or it was only, you know, you feel that there was just less goodwill as time went on? Let's see. That's interesting. I think that that's when your lawyers make their money. <laughs> you know, they're making money all the time, yeah. the lawyers, but that's when that's when it comes down to negotiations because see there's an impasse there then what happens is i've said you all are just part of something that's really deceitful and i don't know how you can get out of that one so i don't really want to turn in songs to you and you don't like me very much because i've called you on your crap and it doesn't mean i don't have my own crap but i'm not i'm not trying to hustle your Concert tickets. So do you see we were at an impasse? And so this would be like basically getting out of a record deal to go elsewhere. This would be like making sure that you fulfilled your contract, but without betraying your audience and making sure your the records were as good as you could make them. Right. At any point, maybe not even right in that thick of that era, but at any point along the line, have you ever sort of just said like, what do I need this crap for? I can afford to not do this. I can do whatever. I, I'm just not going to do this anymore. I think that, yeah, there there have been times with the music industry itself that you realize I'm not really interested in playing that game, but I am interested in collaborating with the audiences out there and making a connection with them. And I guess the Internet, because the internet was then taking on a life of its own, then things were shifting, and it was because of the public, because of the people that came to the shows, that I was able to stand up to some of those in the music industry and just say, I'll meet you halfway, and I'm here to be fair, but if you cross my line, I got a tomahawk at the side (laughs) of my belt. So... Flashing forward a, a few years here, up until around 2013, I think it was interesting, maybe a little surprising, that 
when people found out that you had gone off and written a musical for the stage. That was not something that I don't I don't believe you'd expressed in years past a desire to do. We just had Sting on this podcast. I know you were also together at our roundtable for the Hollywood Reporter, and he said, you know, he went through that with the last ship and said it was one of the hardest things, but also one of the most fulfilling things that he had ever done even though it didn't necessarily click to the degree that he would have hoped or whatever, that was his takeaway. What was your takeaway of very different sort of music composition for the stage? Well, The Light Princess, we haven't gone commercial yet. It was at the National Theater in the UK. And working with the creative team, it is the most collaborative form that I've ever been a part of. And working with the actors designing things with Sam Adamson, who he, he's the co-writer on this, for a particular voice was and is my why well, I love it. Hmm. So coming to the present, how did you first hear about this documentary, Audrey and Daisy, and why do you think it hit home with you once you did? So what was the beginning? Netflix sent Audrey and Daisy over. I watched it, and I couldn't speak. After Why watching. did they send it to you? What was their what was their thought process? Do you know? No, not exactly. I think they were aware of my work with Rain, which is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. I've been working with them since 1994. They're the nation's hotline, and people over at Rain they're in the trenches working with victims to become survivors. And I think that the film is a film that. Well, it shocked me because I was aware of sexual assault on our college campuses, yet the film talks about not only are our high school students sexually assaulting their peers, but it's now in our middle schools. And it was just something that I felt Audrey isn't with us anymore. Her light has flickered out. It's been extinguished. Daisy and Delaney, they have become survivors and are talking to high school students about assault and about empowerment, and they have really become lights. So the song needed to hold these different stories and also address that the communities those of us that don't want to look at the issue or were silent, those kids who were bullying these girls, and the bullies are girls as well as boys. So the song needed to address all these issues. And the reason for your personal interest in Rain, going back to I think you did their first ceremonial first call when they started years ago, you are, have been their national spokesperson, and now this as well. You referred earlier that you feel you have a, you can relate in a very personal way to what these girls in this movie went through, right? I wrote a song called Mina Gun that was on Little Earthquakes, which is based on a personal experience. And Mina Gun is a song that I would play every night. And a young girl fainted at a show in 1994. And when I went backstage, she said, will you take me with you? Because my stepfather will rape me when I get home tonight. And he raped me last night. And it won't stop. And my mom won't hear the truth and calls me a liar and that I'm crazy. So she didn't want us to call the police. I was told by legal that if I took her I would be arrested for kidnapping because we were crossing state line that night. And in that moment, I realized she had no advocate. And so I joined forces with Rain in 1994 and have been working with him ever since. And with Audrey and Daisy, does a part of you look at that story where, you, as you say, one of them has gone one way and the other one so far, thankfully, the other, despite, you know, attempts and things that have been avoided, thankfully, but like, did you see how, you know, you could have just as easily been Audrey as Daisy yourself? I think that the cyberbullying component 
to Audrey and Daisy, to our time now, is something that we have to talk about. Because in Audrey's case, she was not aware that pictures were taken and then were uploaded, and everybody at her school had seen them before she really realized what was happening. And her world was spinning out of control. And her parents did not know what was happening until Audrey took her own life. They didn't begin piecing it together. That's how quickly it can happen. And the idea that it's happening in somebody else's community, not ours, it's, it's wrong. And now we're at a time where it seems as if bullying can be rewarded and validated. So it's essential that in Audrey and Daisy's story, there was, with Daisy, there was a lot of bullying and people calling her a liar and threatening her if she took her case forward, which she did. So that's just part of the conversation that we have to keep talking about. The song comes in at the end of the movie, and I think that's perhaps because you want to send people out of the movie in a certain mindset, but that's also maybe why you took the inspiration for some of the lyrics in the song, the central lyrics, come from a different wording but but similar usage earlier in the film, right? So can you talk about, because again, I think it all comes to you, you how you choose to look at this, frame the frame the topic of discussion here, right? There was a mantra above Daisy's brother's head that said, monsters are made, not born. And when I saw that, when I watched the film for the second time, the muses started screaming. And I put it on pause, and they said, look, this is the key. This is the way in. However, we're not going to put monsters. We're not going to let that be at the center of this. And so it started to develop into heroines. And so instead of monsters are made, not born, we have heroines, they're not born, they're they are made. And so at least people can leave the movie with some hope, I would, I would guess, from take some comfort in that rather than beating it down with the idea of monsters, right? Well, the idea, heroines, they are not born, they are made. A phoenix forms, her ashes rise, expose their hell, break Satan's spell, fire purifies its redemption time Mm -hmm. so with the remaining moments here i just have a few sort of big picture things first of all we mentioned 25 years since you really hit most people's radar how are you a different singer songwriter today than you were then well wow i guess everybody that you meet that tells you part of their story because everybody does have a story then they become linked into the next set of songs that haven't been written yet. They don't necessarily know, and I've said this many times, while they're talking about a song that exists and they know. Another one is forming because we're continuing this collaboration that's been going on for 25 what happens in the music industry to women when they turn 50? You're still going strong, but generally, how do they get treated differently in your experience from what you've, or from what you've witnessed, I should say? I'm glad you asked me that. Some women have been marginalized by the music business itself. There seems to be an acceptance by our culture that men, even if they have pot bellies and beards, <laughs> There's, there's an aphrodisiac that people feel when a man has experience and wisdom. There's a sensuality. There's a power to that, a seductive power. But women having wisdom, it hasn't yet had the same effect in our culture. So I'm thinking, you know what? I don't care. Their stories to be told, their songs to be sung, their high heels to be worn, and their piano stools to be ridden. <laughs> and in a way, does it almost force you in a maybe the a bad thing can create a good thing in the sense that 
to quote you back from something you had said, quote, when you're not on the cover of the magazines anymore, then you realize that the work has to be great. So there's no phoning it in. Does that not that you ever did, but was does that in a way, you know, has the work even gotten better over the years? Do you feel like you're better? Are you a better artist today than you were 25 years ago? No. You don't feel that way? No, I can't say I'm a better artist. I can say to you, though, that I have a better sense of humor than I did. (laughs) And I think that I trust the audience, the people that come to the shows, the community out there. There are people that want songs and stories. And I think there feels as if they're ready for not just guys with beards (laughs) and gray hair to tell the stories, but that they want to hear women who can survive menopause and still play a two-hour show. You have a daughter. Did I hear that she is also a singer? Tash is writing her own songs, and she and I did a duet on my last album called Promise. We have a really fun time working together, and... You know, I kind of sing, as everybody knows, like a fairy on crack. And so (laughs) it's great to be able to jam and play music for an instrument like hers. Mm -hmm. Who do you listen to these days, and which of today's popular singers do you hope she's listening to? Don't take this wrong, but I I don't name drop like that, because the reason is I'll leave somebody out that I don't want to leave out. And I know what that's like because I was left out 25, 30 years ago. And so there are so many good people out there, and she and I are listening to them. And how does it feel for you when at something like that roundtable the other day, you hear that you have yourself had a direct influence on people who maybe hit the scene a little after when you hear somebody like Justin Timberlake. I don't know if you knew that, but he comes out and says, you were a profound influence on his life early on with Little Earthquakes, and I'm sure you get that from others as well, but what do you make of that? Well, I have to tell you, he sang Leather to me. He came up to me and started singing Leather, and I thought, wow. (laughs) If only there's a piano right here, right right now, I'd want to sit down and hear that young man sing Leather. (laughs) And lastly, if you had never found your way into music, which I understand, obviously, that's a big if because it started so early for you. But if you had never found your way into music, what do you think you'd be doing today? No, I'm, I'm unemployable. <laughs> awesome. Thanks a lot. I, I appreciate so it. I that. enjoyed it.